Welcome to the Mindspace Podcast. I'm Joe Flanders. Thanks for tuning in. As you may know, the purpose of the Mindspace Podcast is to inspire well-being, to help us all move toward a healthier, more joyful, and more meaningful life for ourselves and our communities. I'm convinced that a scientific understanding of well-being provides a strong foundation for this pursuit. And my guest today is an exceptional guide to this area of science. His name is Colin DeYoung, and he's an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Minnesota. He specializes in the study of personality and its biological bases. I feel like this episode is particularly relevant at this time of year. It's the beginning of 2019, and for many of us, this is a period of reflection a moment to clarify our hopes and dreams for the next 12 months. The podcast should align nicely with the state of mind, as Colin talks a fair bit about the philosophical bases of well-being science. Our conversation challenged me, actually, to check in on my own assumptions about my happiness and make sure I have the basics right. We also discuss the role of a few different aspects of well-being, including personality, habits, values, goals, and practices such as mindfulness meditation. You'll hear Colin and I speak about the Big Five theory of personality and how it surpassed the Myers-Briggs approach to become the dominant model in personality science. If that discussion makes you curious about your own personality, you could get a report on your Big Five profile by filling in a simple questionnaire that we will make available to you on our website. So check the show notes for this episode on mindspacewellbeing.com. Finally, if you're inspired to improve your own well-being, Mindspace could help. You can make an appointment with one of our therapists or coaches. You could register for one of our mindfulness programs. You could join our meditation community at Presence. Or you could bring Mindspace to your workplace. Visit mindspacewellbeing.com. For details. And now I bring you my conversation with Colin DeYoung. Hey Colin, welcome to the podcast. Hey Joe, thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure. Why don't we start by you just telling us who you are and what you do? All right. So um, I'm Colin DeYoung, and I am a professor of psychology at the University of Minnesota. Uh, and I study personality psychology, and uh, I have a kind of an emphasis on neuroscience. So I'm interested in the brain systems that are involved in different personality traits. Um, I'm just interested also in personality in general. Um, and I usually say that I'm interested in the structure and sources of personality. So what are our important personality traits? What are the components of personality? And where do they come from? Okay. And, and um, how do you do this kind of research? What kind of methods do you use? Uh, we use a mix of a whole variety of different methods. Um, there's the old standby, of course, for personality research is just a questionnaire. So you ask people uh, questions about what they're like and they rate themselves on a, on a variety of different questions. And uh, that's still the best way that we have to get at people's personalities because we need an assessment of what they're like in general. Um, we can supplement that by having their peers, friends, family, anyone who knows them well, uh, also 
give ratings of their personality, and that seems to improve our assessment. Uh, there are some things that you know about your personality that other people don't, but there are some things that other people know about your personality that you don't. Um, but then in addition to questionnaires, we also use um, a variety of cognitive tests and computerized tasks. Um, and then for the neuroscience part, of course, we need to do something uh, to scan people's brains. And we usually use uh, MRI for that in my lab, so magnetic resonance imaging. Okay. You mentioned something interesting there around I know stuff about my personality and other people might know other things about my personality that it's hard to get kind of an objective measure of what my personality actually is. And I want to add another kind of wrinkle to that, which is that we've been using actually your personality tests at work lately. And people have approached me to say, well, I feel like I'm one way at work and I'm another way at home. So in a way, personality is going to be sensitive to context as well, right? Yes, that's true. And that's a, that's a real issue. Um, that's why when we have people do those questionnaires, we just ask them what they're like in general. And so, of course, you know, that's, that's imperfect. Uh, they have to do kind of like, some, I don't know, some kind of averaging in their heads. Um, but we're interested in people's general tendencies. Um, you know, personality psychologists recognize that people are not going to act the same way in every situation. Uh, and in fact, that's a common misconception about the idea of a personality trait. Um, when we talk about people having personality traits, like if we say that somebody's high in anxiety, you know, they they're have a personality trait of anxiety, we don't mean they're experiencing anxiety every minute of every day in every situation. Uh, we just mean that they're more likely to uh, experience more anxiety in more situations than someone who's low in anxiety. Uh, and they might have some situations where they're totally calm, even if somebody else might find it stressful. But just what we're doing essentially is talking about a kind of global average of people's tendencies. What about the argument that personality is totally dependent on context? That it doesn't exist, in other words. Right. Yeah, well, that's pretty well established to be false at this point. Um, it's very clear that people do have uh, persistent tendencies and regularities in their behavior. Um, you know, and of course, that's just confirming people's common sense. Uh, you know, you can, if I ask you about any one of your friends, you're going to describe them and you're going to describe them in terms of the ways that they, that they typically act. Uh, and if they're good around friends, you've me, seen them in a, but if they're good friends, you've seen them in a wide array of situations. Uh, it's unlikely that somehow just your presence is turning them into uh, a, you know, a predictable person in ways that don't apply at all uh, in reality or across the rest of their lives. Um, and so, uh, but as I say, it's not just common sense. There is plenty of uh, evidence to indicate that that is true. So as a personality researcher, you're just stuck with the challenge of trying to get the best estimate of their general tendencies. That's right. Uh, the best we can do is to triangulate, right? And so, you know, in, for different, uh, different concepts or traits in, in psychology, there are different kinds of measurement. And uh, you know, so for example, if I'm really interested, if the trait that I'm really interested in is intelligence, um, I can use an IQ test, and uh, an IQ test is a good measure of general cognitive ability. You know, people are still sometimes skeptical about IQ tests, but in fact, there's, it's pretty clear that those are among the best measures that we have in psychology. Um, and you know, that's fine because what we're looking at is somebody's you know ability to do the best that they can on a particular test that has a right or a wrong answer. 
Um, but to get at most of people's traits, we're stuck using these questionnaires because there isn't a right or a wrong answer. We can't just give you a, some kind of performance test to find out how extroverted you are, for example. Uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe somebody will devise one, but I doubt it. Okay. Uh, one other question related to this issue of uh, behavior being context dependent. Uh, I feel like it's possible that some people's behavior um, is going to vary more depending on context and others, meaning some people are always the same or more likely to be the same regardless of the context, and some people yes. more are more chameleon-like. Is there any uh, study of that phenomenon? Uh, yes, actually, there's been a lot of research on that phenomenon, um, and I actually uh, published a paper about that recently with a, a graduate student that I've been collaborating with uh, named Mike Wilmot. Um, that has been studied under the label of self-monitoring, um, which is kind of a weird name, I think, for the concept. But it basically means that um, some people uh, pay a lot of attention to how they're coming across in different situations and adjust their behavior a lot, depending on the situation, um, whereas other people don't. But it turns out that you can predict who is likely to do that based on people's personality traits, sort of ironically. So that the tendency to be to act differently in different situations is itself uh, basically like a personality trait. And it can come from a couple of different places. Uh, so probably the, the, the biggest personality traits that determine whether you're likely to act in a lot of different ways in different situations or to be relatively consistent um, are well, extroversion is one of them, um, and a trait called openness to experience uh, or intellect, we can talk about that a little bit, um, is the other one. And um, basically those both have to do with how sort of flexible and exploratory you are. Uh, extroversion is sort of about how exploratory you are in your behavior, and uh, openness is more about how flexible you are in your cognition, your perception. Um, and those, two things together lead people to just basically adopt more ways of uh, acting or trying things out or thinking about things in the world. Um, now, the other place that that tendency towards self-monitoring or acting different comes from uh, is more from a place of insecurity. Um, so people who, are, who feel socially awkward or self-conscious um, who are worried about how other people perceive them, uh, they're also likely to try to adjust their behavior to the situation more than people who are, you know, more comfortable or have a more clear sense of who they are. Okay, so you, you actually mentioned a few traits already. It sounds like you're, all, you're taking us into one sort of paradigm, which I believe is the big five. Can you just tell us about that approach to personality? Uh, yes, that's, yeah, that's a good idea because we should uh, probably have some foundation because um, I'll probably mention big five traits a lot. So um, personality psychologists for a long time, like let's say from the uh, 50s, 60s, 70s into the 80s, uh, we're really concerned with trying to figure out what are the um, most general and common dimensions of personality. In other words, there are like a thousand different ways that you could describe people's personalities. So there are a lot of different personality traits, um, but some of those traits tend to appear together. Like it turns out that if uh, somebody is 
more sociable. They're also likely to be more talkative. They're also likely to be more assertive and driven. They're also likely to be more physically active. Uh, and they're even also more likely to experience more kind of upbeat, positive emotions like excitement and enthusiasm and joy. Um, and it turns out that all of those things kind of hang together. If you know that somebody has one of them, they're more likely to have the other ones. And so we can summarize that whole general tendency as the personality trait or dimension of extroversion. Um, and anyway, there was a lot of research for a number of decades and that really got facilitated once computer power became good enough to do these kinds of complex analyses um, that has basically established uh, that there are five major dimensions of this, these sort of patterns of co-occurrence or co-variation uh, within personality traits. And so those are what we call the big five. Um, and so just to run through them, uh, extroversion versus introversion is one of them. Um, in modern personality psychology, uh, introversion doesn't mean that you are imaginative or creative uh, or interested in the life of the mind or fantasy or whatever. Um, it basically just means that you are low in this extroverted tendency so that you're more quiet, you're more reserved, um, you're you know, just less assertive, more submissive. And um, those, some of those traits that people sometimes associate with introversion because of the way that Jung thought about it, uh, those are actually part of a different dimension, a different one of the big five traits. Uh, and that's the one that I already mentioned just a minute ago in terms of people being flexible in their behavior. Um, and that was a trait that's called openness to experience. Um, now, the confusing thing about this one is that uh, it's also sometimes called intellect. And so there was a long debate in personality psychology about what was the best way to characterize this. And the way that this debate got resolved, and this has been some of the, some of the research relevant to this has actually been work that we've done in my lab, um, has been to realize that this broad big five dimension has components that are both related to how uh, intellectual and engaged in kind of abstract ideas and philosophical interests uh, that people are. Um, and it also has components that are related to people's openness to more perceptual or imaginative experience. So tendency toward appreciating art and being interested in aesthetics and seeing patterns and things, um, <clears throat> being more prone to, to fantasy and imagination and artistic creativity. So all these things come together and you might wonder, well, like how do those things really go together? And it seems to be what they're reflecting is this kind of common tendency toward cognitive exploration, right? Like we can explore the world through our behavior and actually you know, pick things up and take things apart and go to new places. Um, but we can also explore the world by thinking about it or by looking at it, um, by manipulating information in various ways. And so there's this one crucial personality trait uh, that's really fundamental to a lot of centrally human tendencies like intelligence and creativity and imagination. Um, that is one of the one of these big five traits. And so um, it often ends up now getting referred to as openness slash intellect. And it's kind of an awkward way to talk about it, but it's because it's got so many kind of shades and nuances to it. All right. So that's the first two of the big five. Uh, and then the third one that I'll mention is neuroticism. Um, that's an old label with a lot of baggage. Uh, if you don't want to think about Freud when you talk about personality, you can call it something like negative emotionality, because uh, it basically refers to the tendency to experience all different kinds of negative emotions. So uh, sadness, anxiety, irritability, jealousy, uh, insecurity, 
all these things. Uh, unfortunately, if you are the kind of person who's prone to experiencing some negative emotions, you're also prone to experiencing all the rest of them too. Um, it's kind of an unfair fact about human nature. Um, but so some people are just more sensitive to negative emotions than others, and that seems to be due to their sensitivity to uh, possibilities of threat and, and punishment. And okay, so the next big five trait is agreeableness, and that basically collects all of the different traits that are related toward people's tendencies to be altruistic and cooperative, uh, right? We're social animals. We have to interact with lots of other human beings all the time. And one of the things that matters is that we have to be able to get along with them. We have to be able to coordinate our goals with goals of other people. Uh, and so we have a whole bunch of different uh, mechanisms or adaptations that allow us to do that. Um, but different people do it to different degrees, right? Some people don't seem to care much about whether they uh, hurt other people's feelings or inconvenience them or get in their way or uh, prevent them from meeting their needs or whatever. And some people care about that so much that, you know, they can't even manage sometimes to prioritize their own needs over the needs of other people. So there's a lot of, uh, there's a big range of variation there. And that goes by the name of agreeableness. And then the last one is conscientiousness. And conscientiousness refers to people's uh, ability to be self-disciplined, to be organized, uh, to be hardworking and pursue long-term goals, um, and to be orderly and you know neat and on time. And so it's all of these things that basically require us to uh, prioritize some kind of uh, abstract rule or long-term goal over just following our uh, our impulses or uh, pursuing short-term um, you know distractions or enjoyments or whatever. So that's that's the big five. Okay. My understanding is that the big five has really become the dominant framework for studying personality in psychology. And I, I guess a couple of questions on that, maybe how that came to be. It does sort of sound a bit arbitrary, like why five? Why those five in particular? And then probably personality scale that maybe is more um, known in the general public is this Myers-Briggs approach. I'm wondering how Big Five came to sort of overtake that as the as the dominant uh, model. Okay, well, those are those are definitely both good questions. Um, I don't want to spend too much time talking about the Myers Briggs because I, I feel like I spent a lot of time talking about it the last time I did a podcast with another friend of mine. <laughs> um, but um, it's sort of an inevitable question because that's such a popular test just within the general public. Um, let me first start with where the Big Five came from. Um, and actually, the first one thing I want to say is that, you know, as with most uh, scientific ideas, uh, not everyone is convinced that the Big Five is the best way to describe personality. Um, it's certainly not the only way. It's based on the patterns by which different personality traits tend to group together within people. Um, and as I said, that's something that has been uh, studied empirically over decades now. Um, and it's essentially just like an empirical observation. So you can ask, uh, you know, why are there five? Uh, but, you know, some people have said that that's like asking why are there, uh, you know, five continents um, or are there six? Well, whatever, you know, however many there are, it's just an, <laughs> it's just an empirical observation, right? Um, and so the question uh, is, you know, well, why are there those particular five traits? And that's actually one of the things that I'm particularly interested in is understanding where these different traits come from. Um, now, as I mentioned, not everybody thinks it's the best way. There's another system 
that is also empirically based that suggests that maybe six traits are uh, more useful for understanding personality. It's, but the thing is that that system is very similar to the big five. It basically just uh, splits the traits up in a slightly different way. So it kind of splits uh, one of the big five traits into two and reorganizes a couple of the other ones. Um, so basically, that's what I would say is that there's not going to be an absolute answer about what is the best system. Um, but we know that the system that we're using is, uh, is a pretty good approximation of the kind of empirical reality that's been observed uh, across hundreds of studies uh, for many years now. Now, in terms of how the, how the Big Five compares to the Myers-Briggs, the thing you have to understand about the Myers-Briggs is that it has no scientific basis. Okay, so uh, it was developed by someone who was uh, an enthusiast of Jung's psychological ideas and theories. And she did not have any particular training in psychometrics or psychology. Uh, she was just a fan of Jung and thought that it would be good to be able to measure his ideas in this way. So she devised this system on this questionnaire um, with some help from her mother. That's there's Myers and Briggs. One of them is Myers, the other one's Briggs. And it became incredibly popular. But as I said, it doesn't have a scientific basis and there are a lot of problems with it from an empirical standpoint. You know, nonetheless, it can kind of give people a sense of what their personalities are like. But, and as I said, I don't wanna spend a lot of time talking about it. I'll just mention a couple of the problems with it from a scientific perspective. Uh, one is this use of it to categorize people as either one end of a trait or the other, like you're either an introvert or an extrovert. Uh, you're either a, a judger or a perceiver. Well, you know, the problem with this is that uh, that's not how personality is actually arranged in the population. There aren't categories of people who fall into one personality trait or another. Uh, what there is is a continuum. You know, it's like we talk about uh, a spectrum often when people are talking about uh, mental health problems. Well, all of personality is composed of spectra. Right? So it's not the case that you're either an extrovert or an introvert. It's a, the case that you have some degree of extroversion versus introversion. Um, and it turns out that just about all of these normal personality traits are uh, distributed on the, norm, the normal curve, which is also called the bell curve. Right? And what that means is that there are a lot of people who are basically uh, average in that trait or near the average. Um, and then there are relatively fewer people who are at one extreme or the other. And all those people who are near the average, if you try to categorize them as being either an extrovert or an introvert, uh, you're likely to either mislead them uh, or what often happens is that people get worried because their scores are unstable, like they take the Myers-Briggs one time and then take it again and their personality has changed. Doesn't actually mean, however, that their personality has changed very much. It just means that even within the margin of error of the test, if they're really near the average, they might have scored just above the average one time and just below the average another time, um, just you know for reasons of error in the test, and they'd get categorized as having a totally different personality. So the way that we study personality scientifically is that we give you a score ranging from you know extremely introverted to extremely extroverted um, and you know you might be at the 50th percentile or the 75th percentile so we use a continuous measure and that's important then the other issue with it with it is just the way that it divides up the personality traits the the biggest example of problem there is this idea that uh, you're either a thinking person or a feeling person well it turns out that, empirically speaking, those two things are simply not opposed. 
it's not the case that people who are more likely to be intellectually engaged and like to think about things and uh, interested in you know logic are uh, less likely to be engaged with emotions and to be uh, sympathetic with to other people and to uh, pay close attention to their emotional experience. Um, those things just aren't the opposite ends of a single trait. So you're sort of artificially creating this dichotomy where none exists. And, you know, people will say, well, but it's important to talk about Jung's ideas of personality. Well, uh, Jung was a brilliant man and had a lot of uh, good insights, but he also wasn't a scientist by our standards today. Some of what he did was, you know, reasonably scientific by the standards of science, uh, at, you know, in 1900. Um, but that doesn't mean that we should be paying too much attention to it when we're trying to do science today. There just isn't the same kind of empirical support. All right, so that's my that's my rant on the MBTI. So <laughs> now we can get back to more modern topics. Okay, well, I actually found that super interesting, so I really appreciate it. But we'll we'll move on because maybe we'll get to topics that you're more interested in exploring. And actually, what I'd like to ask you, um, not sure if you'll be pumped about this one or not, but how did you personally? Uh, sort of get interested in personality and why did this become the thing that you devote your professional life to? Um, well, really it's because of a class that I took in college. So, um, I mean, I've always been interested in kind of what makes people tick and trying to understand people. Um, I think partly because I wasn't very good at it when I was a kid, I was kind of socially awkward and I sort of didn't get like, you know, how's this whole sort of social interaction thing supposed to work? Um, so I was curious about people, also just, you know, introspective and interested in understanding myself. Um, but when I got to college, I was, I thought I was going to major in philosophy. Um, I was really interested in philosophical questions around uh, how consciousness works. Um, and um, I was into existentialism. I had taken uh, a class that talked about that in, uh, in high school. And I think existentialism is sort of a natural fit for angsty teenagers, right? Um, but uh, what happened was that I got to college and uh, probably just by chance took a couple of really boring philosophy classes in my first year. And, uh, you know, when you're 19, you don't know what the hell you're doing. So uh, if I had happened to take a, a philosophy class that I really liked, I could be in a very different place right now. But anyway, that's what happened. And so I felt like, well, I've got to find a new major. And so I started shopping around for different majors. Uh, and I found this program that was, there was a interdisciplinary cognitive science program. Um, and I was coming more out of the humanities. You know, I was interested in philosophy and literature. Um, and I discovered that in the cognitive science program, there was a track that was run out of the history of science department. Um, and they would allow you to, uh, to classes in philosophy, if they were related to the philosophy of science. And um, so anyway, so I found something that really seemed to match what I wanted. And I ended up studying the history of psychology and psychiatry um, as my main focus in college. Uh, and in fact, I, uh, I wrote my senior honors thesis on Jung and his theory of the collective unconscious and sort of trying to assess that from a historical perspective. Um, but um, one of the requirements of that major was that whatever science you were studying historically, you also had to take some current classes in it as well. Um, and so I ended up taking a bunch of psychology classes, like a minor's worth, basically. Um, and the first one of those classes that I took uh, was 
uh, a class called uh, Personality and Its Transformations. Um, and this was at Harvard, and it was taught by uh, Jordan Peterson, who is quite famous now uh, for other reasons. But anyway, I was very interested by his class when I took it. Um, and that was what kind of got me onto this trajectory of studying psychology and specifically studying personality psychology. And it just, it turned out that there was, you know, there was actually a discipline that was interested in uh, scientifically researching all of these questions that I thought were really important about life, but I hadn't really realized you could study them scientifically. Like, you know, why are people different from each other? And uh, how do people figure out like what's a good thing for them to do in life? Um, all of these kinds of questions that, you know, a lot of people are interested in when they're 19 and 20. Um, and it turns out that personality psychology actually does research into these questions. What can you tell us about what science says about making good decisions and um, all those things that you were interested in when you were 19 and what personality research says about who is experiences well-being and why? <laughs> all right. Well, somehow I expect uh, this is what's going to take up a lot of the rest of this podcast because <laughs> that's, a, that's a very big question. Um, it's also something I've been getting uh, more interested in recently. I'm actually uh, working on a paper right now about um, personality and well-being um, with a friend of mine, Valerie Tiberius, who's a philosopher here at the University of Minnesota, um, who studies well-being from a philosophical angle um, and has her own theory about well-being. And uh, kind of we discovered that it was a, a, it fit really well with uh, my own theory of personality that I've been developing. So I guess, you know, one place to start with this would be to talk about what do we mean when we say well-being, right? Um, and it turns out that philosophers and psychologists tend to come at this from uh, pretty different perspectives. And again, this is partly because of the challenges of measurement, right? We talked about the difficulty of how you measure people's personalities. Well, it also turns out that it might be difficult to measure well-being, depending on what you think well-being means. Um, now, if you think that well-being is simply uh, somebody's sense of satisfaction with their own lives and how happy they are, uh, then it's actually pretty easy to measure. Uh, and so this is how psychologists understand well-being, uh, probably, probably precisely because it's easy to measure. So in psychology, what we do is we just ask people about how satisfied with their lives and uh, how much... Uh, positive relative to negative emotion they experience. Um, and some psychologists have felt like that was a little too limited. So now there's also a, a tendency to think about other types of well-being, uh, like how meaningful people experience their lives to be and that people, whether people have a sense of purpose in their lives. Uh, and of course, these are all really important things in terms of people's, uh, people's experience of their own lives. Um, but nonetheless, you'll notice that they're all still, uh, still completely subjective. Um, they're just about how people feel about themselves consciously. Um, and so it turns out that most philosophers actually wouldn't take that to be an adequate foundation for well-being. Um, the school of philosophy that gets closest to that view uh, would be the hedonists. So there are, um, there are essentially uh, three general types of theories about well-being in philosophy. Um, and I know about this uh, in large part thanks to uh, tutelage from uh, my friend Valerie. Hedonism is one of them, which essentially says that, you know, the balance of pleasure and pain is really what constitutes somebody's well-being. And you can talk about whether 
that's important uh, just from moment to moment, or whether there's some kind of long run balance between pleasure and pain that we should use to establish somebody's well-being. Um, but uh, at any rate, that's really the only philosophical school that thinks uh, subjective experience is the primary or crucial foundation for well-being. There are two other general types of theory. One of them is they're known as list theories, and the original one is comes from Aristotle. Uh, so they're also referred to as Aristotelian approaches to well-being. And they basically argue that there is some objective list of qualities that you have to achieve to have well-being. And that can be uh, with the sense that you have to fulfill some kind of human nature, right? That you have to live up to some kind of potential for human nature. Uh, and that is what true well-being means. And so if you have those kinds of things, whether they are, well, that's the thing is that different philosophers within the school will come up with slightly different lists of what are the qualities that a person should have, like, you know, uh, wisdom and temperance and good judgment and whatever else it is that uh, once somebody has that, then you can say objectively that they have a high level of uh, of well-being. Then the third type of theory are usually called desire or preference satisfaction theories. And these basically state that people have certain, uh, certain desires, certain goals, and the degree to which they are uh, actually achieving those goals or successfully uh, meeting those desires uh, is what really constitutes well-being. Now, there's obviously a subjective component there, right? Because uh, what people's goals and preferences are, are going to be at least in part subjectively determined. Um, but there's thought to be essentially a real uh, potentially objective question in many cases about whether people actually are uh, moving toward their goals or not. So in other words, uh, somebody who was delusional, uh, who thought that things were going really well in their lives and had a you know strong sense of satisfaction and felt like their uh, desires were being met even when if we could identify that in truth that they weren't, that they were failing in most of the things that they themselves profess as their goals and that you know they're heading for some kind of calamity, uh, we might say that, well, they're actually mis misled or deluded about their own well-being. Right? So um, Valerie's theory is kind of a sophisticated version of a, of a preference or desire satisfaction theory. It's called value fulfillment theory. And it basically says that uh, people have well-being to the extent that they are uh, moving toward fulfilling a set of values that they have, and those values have to be uh, appropriate. That's the word that she uses. And what that means essentially uh, is that people's conscious judgments about what they want are well integrated with their, uh, with their emotional lives and their basic motivations, and so these other things about themselves uh, that may not be always fully conscious, um, but that we can uh, you know, try to have some kind of insight into and to pay attention to. And so it turned out that that, that, that idea that you have to have these sort of well-integrated goals that are, uh, that are viable, in other words, they have to be realistically possible for you, um, that are sustainable, that are gonna be things that actually work for you in the long term, or at least relatively long term, because of course people can change their goals. Um, and that also have this quality of being well integrated uh, across our various different goals and both our conscious and unconscious um, experience of the world, our, our relation to the world, 
uh, that fits really well with the kind of approach that I take to how personality works, uh, in which goals are really important. Colin, can I jump in there for one sec? Yes. A couple questions there. So one approach to well-being that I understand is very popular in positive psychology is this notion of eudaimonic well-being, which I believe puts a lot of emphasis on a capacity to handle adversity and make meaning uh, out of the difficult things that arise in life and then sort of integrate experiences that have to do with overcoming difficulty. And there's something about that that's very conducive to well-being. Um, and it's interesting because what you've been talking about, the sense of like moving in the direction of values or working towards goals, I'm wondering how this notion of eudaimonia fits in because we all know that the best laid schemes can easily fall apart, that adversity is a natural part of what it means to be a human being. So would this notion of adversity and overcoming adversity as a source of well-being fit into this approach at all? Yes, it would, although it's interesting that you link it to uh, eudaimonia. So here's a, here's a little quiz for you. Uh, in the description that I gave there of different types of well-being theory, uh, where do you think eudaimonia fits in? Well, if I'm not mistaken, um, and I'll definitely edit this out if I get it wrong, but <laughs> I thought this notion of eudaimonia is Aristotelian. That's true. Okay, yes, you got it right, so you don't have to edit this out. <laughs> but, but it's not part of this list approach that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, so the interesting thing that it is, and I kind of purposely didn't use the word um, because, especially in this dialogue between philosophy and psychology, the use of eudaimonia is really confusing. Uh, so yes, you're right that it comes from Aristotle, uh, and basically eudaimonia to Aristotle meant this state of fulfilling one's, uh, one's human nature and sort of uh, achieving this kind of uh, these optimal qualities uh, that a human being should have. Uh, and so, in other words, it was about fulfilling uh, the purpose of being human. Um, so it's properly described by philosophers in this kind of Aristotelian context, which ends up being more related to these list theories. Now, the problem is that psychologists got hold of this idea and they thought, oh, that sounds great. There's, you know, there's more to life than just happiness and satisfaction. Uh, there are also, there's also this uh, sense of uh, what is the purpose of human life and uh, having a sense of, of meaning and fulfillment. And so what they did basically was that they took uh, eudaimonia and used the term in a way that they may have thought was, uh, let's say, faithful to Aristotle, but the philosophers don't agree, right? So uh, the psychologists, they talk about eudaimonic well-being, uh, and what they mean is that people describe their lives as uh, being meaningful and as having a sense of purpose, um, and there's a whole bunch of measures that now exist that ask people with questionnaires, you know, subjectively to rate those things. But the philosophers say, well, hold on a minute here, because Aristotle wasn't saying that you just, you know, whether your belief about whether you're uh, achieving uh, the fulfillment of human nature is what counts. You actually have to achieve it. It's an objective quality, not a subjective quality. Right. And so the philosophers actually tend to get a bit bent out of shape by the way that the psychologists use the term eudaimonia. So now, you know. Okay, but to what extent does meaning and purpose fit into the approach that you're taking with your colleague around goals and values? Well, I, I do think it is important, right? And so people's subjective sense of, uh, so first of all, we're not claiming that people's subjective sense of well-being, <clears throat> whether it's happiness or meaning or purpose or whatever, is irrelevant. That's obviously very important. Uh, it's just not the whole picture. I think that in order to have a sense of purpose or meaning in life, you have to have 
what uh, Valerie calls appropriate values. Um, and what that means is that you are uh, motivated by some kind of larger, uh, longer-term goals. Um, and now, I should probably say a little bit about this contrast between the terms values and goals. Uh, so I, I tend to use goals uh, in a, a sense of the word that comes from a field called cybernetics. Uh, and we can talk about that a bit more too, because that's the basis of uh, my own personality theory. Uh, so cybernetics is the study of uh, systems that are goal-directed uh, and that manage to self-regulate via feedback, uh, right? So they have some way of monitoring uh, what the state of the world is, and then they also have some kind of representation about the way that the world should be, uh, and they are capable of uh, comparing those things and then engaging in various kinds of uh, strategies or actions or you know, cognitive processes to try to transform the way that the world is into the way that they think that the world should be. And so these representations of the way that the world should be are goals. And goals can be as, uh, as simple and straightforward as, uh, like, I, I want a sandwich because I'm hungry, um, to something like, uh, I think that, um, let's say, uh, I should always be an honest person, uh, or um, I think that uh, war is bad and we should be trying to eliminate it from the world, right? So uh, what people often refer to as values, I think, are in an important sense, uh, just some of these relatively broad, abstract goals. All right, so uh, that gives us a way of thinking about then what it means for people to say that they've got meaning or purpose in life. But isn't a goal something that could be accomplished and a value is something that we can only sort of point ourselves toward? Uh, no, I don't think that that's necessarily true. So uh, philosophers will talk, will talk about people having a range of values from the relatively concrete up to the relatively abstract. Um, now you might say, are there some values that we can only point ourselves toward? Um, and I, you know, that, that might be true, right? There's some things that we might strive for, but that we know are never going to be perfectly achieved. Um, the way that I talk about goals, uh, from the cybernetic perspective is that they are these kinds of, uh, guiding representations of what is desirable. Uh, so you could have a goal, uh, that you were genuinely working for, even though you knew you were never going to perfectly achieve it, right? So, you know, let's say... Uh, well, you know, let's say my goal is to be uh, you know, perfectly honest, let's say, um, but it's unlikely that people are ever going to manage to successfully avoid uh, misstating things occasionally, or, you know, there's the occasional white lie that people feel like is necessary for whatever reason. Um, and, you know, not that I'm trying to say that perfect honesty is the right goal to have, but just that you could imagine somebody having that goal, even though they acknowledge that they were never going to live up to it perfectly, right? And I feel like, well, a lot of the kinds of uh, values and ideals that people get out of their religious or spiritual traditions have those kinds of qualities, right? That, um, you know, people are, we recognize that people are flawed, that they don't always live up to their loftiest uh, ideals, to it, which I would describe as some of their most abstract goals. Um, but nonetheless, they are still there guiding their behavior and people are trying to, um, you know, create a world and create themselves in such a way that they live up to those goals. Okay. So it is a broader use of the word goal. Yes, it is. Yeah. So, so that'll be interesting to kind of map out as we go forward. One of the things, one of the other uh, follow-up questions I had for you is if well-being is so closely tied to goals, um, what do you make of this approach to well-being often 
embodied in in mindfulness and meditation and all this stuff this approach of like letting go and being a little less like obsessed with goals and outcomes and really being able to connect more to engage more readily with the present moment the idea is that if we're constantly preoccupied with where we want to be we're selling ourselves short in terms of appreciating what is already here yes i think that's a really great point um and I think that it's actually compatible with the way that I think about well-being, and it actually raises some uh, really interesting questions, right? So I think that the probably the right way to think about that is that uh, the I think we can boil down well-being from my perspective uh, to two basic questions. One is uh, how successful are you? in moving toward your goals. And by that, of course, I don't, I'm not including just your concrete goals, like, you know, getting a raise at work. Uh, I'm also including these much more abstract goals, uh, you know, like be an honest person or be kind uh, or have fulfilling uh, personal relationships, uh, these kinds of things that people view as part of their, you know, ideal self or ideal future in the way that they want the world to be. Um, and so the, so the first key component is, are people actually making progress toward those things? Um, and the second key component is, how well integrated are their various goals, right? So we can think about people's goals as a hierarchy because some of our goals are broad and some are more narrow, as we've already said. Uh, and typically, in order to achieve broad goals, there are sub-goals that are some of those narrower goals that we need to, that need to be met. So, you know, let's say I have the goal, you know, let's say I'm in college, let's say, and I have the desire to uh, have a fulfilling career and I'm sort of thinking about what my future is gonna be. Uh, maybe I decide that, you know, maybe I have this feeling that I really want to help people. And so I think, well, uh, being a doctor would be a good way to do that. Um, you know, that suddenly I've got this, I've got this, well, very broad goal, which is to help people. Then I've picked a sort of somewhat more concrete sub-goal uh, which is to be a doctor. So that's a way in which I'm going to be able to help people. Uh, and then that sub-goal of being a doctor, that in itself is a goal that needs a whole bunch of different sub-goals, right? So that means I have to uh, successfully uh, get into medical school, and that means that I have to take pre-med courses. And uh, there are all these things that one has to do in order to achieve these broad long-term goals, and they too are, uh, are narrower goals, right? Um, and so we have this whole complex set of goals, and the problem is that they don't all necessarily fit together with each other very well. Uh, let's imagine this person who wants to be a doctor and let's imagine uh, that they've also uh, always really enjoyed music. You know, so let's say they're really an excellent musician, um, studied music as a child, really enjoyed it. Um, and, but now they feel like, well, uh, you know, music is it's good. I'll keep doing that on the side, but I've got to, you know, I've got to get into med school and be a doctor. So maybe I don't have as much time for it as I used to. Uh, now, that might work out. You know, maybe for this person, music is works fine as a side hobby. Um, but maybe it turns out that they were a lot more attached to, uh, to 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 making music than they realized. Um, and what they're finding is, you know, they're not enjoying organic chemistry or these various other things that they're taking in order to be pre-med. Um, you know, there's, there's essentially no time for music. These classes are hard. That's out the window. Um, and they really start to, to suffer because of that and feel like that, that there's a detriment to their well-being. And so now there's an interesting 
choice to make, right? And sometimes people make these choices without really even consciously realizing that they're doing it. It's like things just drop off, there are conflicts between different goals that people have, uh, people make compromises, sometimes without even paying attention to the fact that they're making compromises. Uh, and so a lot of what we have to deal with in life and a lot of uh, what leads to um, poor quality of life or lack of well-being has to do with goal conflict. Uh, you know, we, we have some need that is not being met, uh, you know, because a need is just another way to talk about a goal. To me, a need is basically like a goal that is uh, built into the human being by evolution. Right? There are certain things that there are certain goals that we just can't that aren't really optional for most people that aren't you, you can't escape them. Um, and so there are often these tensions between fulfilling our different needs or goals or values. And uh, I think that to if I can bring this back around to where your question started out, uh, that these traditions that emphasize the important uh, the importance of uh, of mindfulness and non-judgment uh, and uh, letting go of our attachments, what they're doing is basically providing us a tool uh, with figuring out what are really our important goals. Like they don't usually use those words, and that's partly because of the way that I'm using goal in a more general and abstract way. Um, but you might think of it as they help us to figure out what are really our important values. Um, what do we what do we need to be attached to, and what do we not need to be attached to? Now you might say, okay, hang on, hang on. If you're a good Buddhist, you don't think you need to be attached to anything, right? You have to have complete non-attachment. Um, but you know, interestingly, I think that's exactly like one of the things we were talking about earlier. Like one of these values that. Uh, you know, maybe works for some people as something to work toward, but is not actually something that you can achieve. You cannot cease to be a cybernetic system. Uh, in other words, you cannot cease to be an organism, and organisms are goal-directed by their very nature. That is essentially what makes an organism what it is. And so uh, you will continue to need to eat and to sleep. Uh, you will continue to care about uh, your interpersonal relationships you will continue to have goals no matter how good of a Buddhist you are. You don't think it's possible to achieve freedom from those attachments or whatever that means? Well, first of all, if, if I meet someone who claims to be enlightened, I'm suspicious because most of the, uh, most of the people that I've known uh, who seemed particularly enlightened, you know, some uh, very admirable and uh, let's say high level and devoted Buddhists, for example, uh, they do not typically claim to be enlightened. Uh, does the Dalai Lama going around, uh, you know, bragging about his enlightenedness? Um, that's not really the way that it works, I think, because once you are that far along the path to enlightenment, I think what you realize is, again, it's the kind of thing that uh, is an ideal, but you realize that it can never be perfectly achieved. And so, you know, while you are a living organism, you cannot be free of attachments. If by attachments, you mean having goals, right? Having things that you that you desire and that you care about. Um, what you can do, however, is to give yourself the capacity uh, to detach yourself from any particular goal in any particular moment. Um, and you can also give yourself the capacity to take a kind of more uh, distance perspective and to sort out whether uh, you really need to care about some of these things or not, right? So a lot of the times, a lot of the things that we care about are these fairly low-level concrete goals, of course, because they're what are organizing our days. Uh, you know, from moment to moment and hour to hour. It's like, shit, I've got a deadline. I need to get this done. Um, and so it's very easy to get so focused on your relatively short-term goals uh, 
that you lose track of the larger goals or the longer term goals or the more abstract goals or the values or whatever you want to call them, uh, that hopefully your more short term goals are actually helping you to, to move toward and to, to fulfill. So uh, what I think that things like mindfulness practice can help us to do is to uh, allow us to be a lot more flexible in our attachments. They can't eliminate all attachments. They can't eliminate the fact that we need things as living beings. Um, but they can certainly help us to be more flexible uh, to realize that, hey, if I can't, you know, if I can't get closer toward my ideal future through this path, there are probably other paths. Um, I don't have to feel like it is life or death whether this particular path works out or not. Um, you know, and I think uh, to, again, bring this back around to something you asked earlier, this gets back to this idea of coping with adversity, uh, right? And uh, when you were talking about this, rather than the word eudaimonia, I was thinking about the word resilience. Uh, this is uh, how do you manage to cope and recover uh, from setbacks? Uh, and how do you manage to, to adjust? And I think that that's the other crucial thing that um, something like mindfulness can, can potentially contribute to is this capacity to uh, increase our exploratory capacity, the, the ability to generate, to generate new goals um, and new strategies for pursuing existing goals um, and new ways of just interpreting the world, right? That might change what we think we need and what might at some point change what our goals are or might help us to realize that, hey, we're actually much farther along towards some goal than we thought. Um, you know, like maybe you always thought that you needed to have uh, X, Y, and Z in your uh, romantic relationship for you to be happy, but maybe you have some kind of insight that allows you to reinterpret the qualities of the partner that you do have uh, and to see that, oh, in fact, uh, you know, A, B, and C were qualities that actually can meet my goal of having a fulfilling relationship. And so there are all kinds of ways in which uh, we have to be able to be flexible because as you said, right, adversity is just a fact of human life. Things will go wrong. Uh, everything will get all screwed up. Um, and so uh, the more you have that capacity to not be attached to any uh, particular goals and be able to be flexible and develop new goals and new strategies when you need to, uh, the better off you are and the, the higher your life, your well-being is likely to be. So, right. And see, go ahead. I was just gonna, going to wrap up one point that I had started earlier, which was this idea of the importance, not just whether you're successfully moving toward your goals, but whether your goals are well integrated with each other, right? And mm -hmm. some of our goals are conscious. We know that we want X, Y, and Z. Sometimes they're more un unconscious. We just have, let's say, an emotional representation or a motivational state that we can't even quite put a finger on. Um, but it's really inclining us in some direction. So the more uh, integrated we are, uh, the more, well, you know, I said that Jung had some good ideas, even though he wasn't exactly a scientist by our current standards. He had this idea that the goal of uh, psychotherapy and the goal of human development in general was what he called individuation. Um, you want to become an individual. Um, and part of what he stressed was that in, to be individual, to be individuated, uh, means to be undivided. It means to be well integrated. It means that you're not working at cross purposes to yourself. Um, so that means that you have a good understanding of your own uh, emotional life and your motivations, 
uh, and you can uh, connect that to the kinds of conscious feelings that you have about what your goals in life should be. Mindfulness can help us to achieve that kind of integration that's allowing us to have uh, real well-being, uh, which is founded in being not divided against ourselves. Right. So you talked about this tendency to be really caught up in or really, uh, really focused on the, you know, the goals of the moment or the goals of the day. I think we could even be caught up in longer term goals and just sort of pursuing them in the reality on the ground. But this capacity for mindfulness allows us to be flexible, disengage from some, uh, invest more in others, reflect on new ways of approaching the pursuit of that goal when adversity arises. So it really is about cultivating psychological flexibility. Yes, that's right. I, yeah, I, I totally agree with what you said there. I just want to take a little tangent here because you sound like somebody who has either studied or thought a lot about or practiced mindfulness. And you and I actually took a meditation class together. It was my first meditation class in Toronto. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say, you know that I've you know that I've studied mindfulness because we took meditation classes together, but yeah. Yeah, so I, I just want to take a little detour here and just ask you about your own practice and if you're still practicing and, and what it's bringing to your life these days. Sure. It, it is what you're experiencing with your meditation practice related to what we just talked about in terms of this, this theory that you're working on? Yes, well, I wish I could say that I had a good meditation practice still, um, but the fact is that at this point I am meditating... Uh, only very rarely. Um, and it would be great if I was doing it more. And uh, I've thought a lot about like why it's hard to maintain meditation practices. Um, I think that if I look back over my, uh, over my life, you know, for the last, ooh, let's say, uh, what is it now? It's almost 20 years, right? Uh, well, at least 15 or so since uh, I took that class with you. And that was when I really started meditating. Um, and in what I got out of that, and I had a, a very regular meditation practice for probably about five years, let's say. Um, and that was hugely important uh, just for my development and I would say for my well-being even through to today. Um, and a lot of what I learned with that practice uh, is still just influences the way that I experience life all the time. Um, even though I don't sit very often anymore. Um, so what happened was that I, I guess there was a period of, uh, of a few years where I was just meditating less often. Um, and then uh, since then, it's just kind of dropped off. You know, one of the things that I always thought about a lot, even when I was meditating often, was that I would get into periods where I was having a hard time making the time to actually sit and meditate. Um, and that was weird to me as a psychologist because of the fact that when I did it, I found it so rewarding. Uh, I found it, you know, some people talk about really struggling. And of course, everyone, if they've had a regular meditation practice, has had the experience of struggling with their practice um, and feeling like, you know, sometimes it's just really hard to, uh, to, you know, sometimes the mind wandering is worse than usual and uh, it can get frustrating. But uh, you know, I didn't have that experience too often. I mean, I certainly had plenty of experience of having an unruly monkey mind, but um, I, I generally found it to be a really positive experience in the moment while I was actually sitting there. Like it was emotionally positive for me. And so then I thought like as a good psychologist, it's like, well, this should be conditioning me. This should be making it really easy to be motivated to do this. Um, 
And so I started to think about why that might be. And um, I didn't, I, when I started to learn about some of the ways that the brain's reward system works uh, and the way that dopamine works and the way that the endogenous opiate system works, I kind of developed a, a hypothesis. I haven't ever tried to test this yet about why that might be the case. Um, and so basically what you're doing when you are meditating, right, is that you are trying to free yourself from desires, from trying to pursue things, uh, from um, being judgmental about things, from being caught up in pursuing some particular goal, regardless of what it is. Um, and so I think that one of the things that you're doing in uh, typical meditation is that you are really trying to turn off the dopamine system, right? Give yourself some, uh, some freedom from... Uh, from wanting things um, in order to have this greater clarity and perspective. Now, um, so out there in the popular press, dopamine gets presented sometimes as like a feel-good chemical or it's what makes you happy. That's not true. Um, if you, you know, if you take a dopaminergic drug, it will also, it will often induce euphoria, right? That's why people like cocaine and amphetamines, which are acting pretty much directly on the dopamine system. Um, but it turns out that that feeling of pleasure and that good feeling is actually due to a different set of neurotransmitters. Um, those are related to the opiate system. But what dopamine it's doing uh, is it's making you motivated, it's making you want things. So it's really more a chemical about wanting than it is about liking things. Um, and so I think that what you're doing when you meditate is you are temporarily uh, trying to deactivate your dopamine system. Um, and the interesting thing about that is that dopamine is what creates learned motivation. So I think that what's happening, one of the reasons that it's hard to maintain a regular meditation practice is that even though you have that, you can have that kind of liking and enjoyment of the behavior, but you are intentionally suppressing the process that would normally make a behavior addictive, right? That would make it something that you were really motivated to do and that you had the desire to do in a way that manifested in your behavior. So I think that there's something interesting about the way that meditation works by its very nature that actually makes it sort of inherently harder to train to train yourself into a habit with it. That is that really would explain a lot if it's true because this is something we face at Mindspace and um, everywhere I go trying to inspire people to meditate um, is that almost everybody recognizes that it would be beneficial and valuable and and a useful thing to do but it's just so hard to make it stick. And one of the, one of the things that um, for probably millennia people have understood about maintaining a meditation practice is community is a hugely important component. Right. So you, you, there's the Sangha and there's the, the, the people that you sit with. And I wonder if that becomes a question of introducing reward into the routine. Well, I think it's not even just reward, although of course people are rewarded by social... Uh, engagement often in community, um, but it's also just building like a pragmatic structure so that you have the organization and it's not just up to you and your whims whether you, you know, whether you pursue the practice or not. You've got obligations to other people. You've got all of these other motivational systems that are now coming into play uh, that help you organize your behavior other than just whether you feel like doing something or not. Right, right. So I feel like we should kind of connect the two streams of our conversation so far. One of them is this really interesting discussion of well-being in this model that you're working on with a colleague. And the other one is personality. How 
does personality fit in here? Are there traits that would make us more likely to be individuated or have our goals integrated successfully? What are the traits that make that more difficult? Where does psychopathology fit into all of this? Oh man. <laughs> uh, well, that's a, that's all a big can of worms. Um, so let's start with just the kind of basic idea of associations between personality traits. And we talked about the big five uh, and well-being. Um, and let's back up for a minute and talk about well-being in the way that psychologists usually think about, which is just how satisfied are you with your life uh, and how much you know, positive versus negative emotion do you experience? Um, well, it turns out that even if you ask people about that, uh, you know, just like how you feel right now in the moment, um, that that turns out to be remarkably stable over time, right? And what that means is that, like, if I ask you now how you're feeling and a bunch of other people, and I ask all those people and you again, uh, you know, a few years from now, there's actually going to be a pretty strong correlation between who is feeling good versus bad now and who's feeling good versus bad years later. Um, and one of the things that that indicates is that uh, that sense of subjective well-being uh, basically has the properties of a personality trait. Um, in other words, it's very stable over time. And you might think, well, that's weird because people's lives change a lot and some they get better and worse. So why is that so stable? Um, well, it turns out that people's levels of well-being have a lot to do with their basic personality. Uh, and even when good or bad things happen in, life, in our lives, uh, we tend to, uh, to adjust over time and to get used to them basically back to our kind of predisposed levels of happiness. Now, of course, there can be some long-term changes for better or for worse, but this is just talking about this, a, a general tendency across people. Um, and so it turns out that your levels of neuroticism, which remember reflects levels of negative emotion, plus your levels of extroversion, which in part reflect your levels of positive emotion, have a lot to do with uh, your levels of well-being over time. You know, and so that's that's kind of a bummer for people who are highly neurotic and uh, relatively introverted because it suggests that they have a certain degree of, you know, let's say less well-being, if you will, from the subjective perspective uh, than somebody who has uh, who has different levels of those traits, who's at the opposite end of the spectrum. And that's actually part of why I think it's important to describe well-being in terms of people's capacity to uh, move toward their goals rather than only in terms of their uh, just subjective sense of satisfaction or happiness. Um, because you can have people, you know, and so just as a slight tangent, obviously most people have the goal of being happy, right? So to the degree that they're subjectively less happy, maybe they are having some trouble meeting one of their goals. But we have, people have different levels of expectation. And somebody who is, you know, generally prone to negative emotion can make peace with their own level of neuroticism to some extent. And I think that's one of the things that mindfulness is really important for, is that it sort of helps you to understand that uh, there are going to be limitations on your own tendencies to experience the world that you can work around, that you can be flexible with, and that don't mean that everything is ruined, right? Like, uh, let's use... Uh, just like a sort of stereotypical American example was it's like everybody, Americans want to be extroverted and outgoing. And it's very much, you know, one of the kind of cultural ideals that people should be uh, loud and proud and whatever else. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of potentially tough to be an introvert in the U.S. Um, but if you can, you know, accept that that does not need to be a goal that you have and that being relatively introverted, even if it means that you're not the most you know, a bullion or outgoing or a happy person from moment to moment, 
doesn't mean that you are necessarily failing at your goals, right? You can adjust your goals. You, you can say that your, your goals are not necessarily to have the maximum uh, excitement and immediate pleasure at every moment of, of your life, that you might have other things that are more meaningful and, and contribute more to your sense of purpose in life. So getting back to your question, I mean, the answer is yes, there are certainly pers personality traits that have a direct link to our uh, sense of well-being subjectively. Um, but I don't think that that necessarily means that your personality traits have some kind of determinative effect on your capacity for well-being, partly because I think that mere subjective well-being is not the right way to think about it. Um, if we think about well-being more in terms of having uh, well-integrated goals and values and, and being able to pursue them sustainably, there again, we are going to see some influence of people's personality traits on them. And your personality traits are basically going to be you know, they're going to be things that facilitate what you want to do in life or that make it harder. And you just have to learn how to work around them. Um, you, I mean, there's also there is also a possibility for people's personality traits to change over time. That's really important to say as well. Uh, we know that personality is not completely fixed. That's something that people used to have. Uh, let, let's call it by now. It's, it's a myth, essentially, right, that your personality is fixed once you reach adulthood. It's never going to change again, especially if we're talking about these broad personality traits like the big five. Uh, it's clear from research over the last 20 years or so that people's personality traits do change, uh, even in adulthood. Um, I guess the thing is, though, that it's not easy to change them, right? And they're not likely to change dramatically. You're not likely to go from being a complete introvert to being a complete extrovert or vice versa. Um, but change is possible even in these basic tendencies. Um, but even without changing our basic personality traits, which can be very difficult uh, and limited, uh, we can change other things about ourselves. We can change our habits, right? We can change the way that we interpret the world. We can change our specific concrete goals. Um, and so uh, it is, and those things in as much as they are relatively stable over time, those are important parts of our personality, right? The things that I care about, uh, the ways that I interpret the world, even though they're things that I've learned in interaction with my environment, maybe influenced in various ways by my personality traits, those changeable, updatable things that I've learned uh, those are all parts of my personality, and those can be changed more flexibly than my personality traits. Is that your notion of the characteristic adaptation? Yes, it is, right? So in my, in my theory, which is called cybernetic big five theory, um, because it basically tries to apply cybernetic principles to understanding what personality is and where the big five come from, uh, I make a, a crucial distinction between personality traits and characteristic adaptations. And so the traits are these variations in mechanisms that all people have, right? Like everybody has the capacity to be threatened by things or to be punished by things. And how sensitive that mechanism is, is what seems to determine our levels of neuroticism as a personality trait. And so when I talk about personality traits, I'm talking about concepts or qualities that we could use to describe people uh, at, at any point in history in any culture, right? So, you know, argumentativeness, for example, People now can be more or less argumentative. I'm sure there were more or less argumentative cavemen, right, uh, and cave women. So uh, I'm sure that was relevant back then. Um, on the other hand, there are things that are specific to any individual culture, right? So, like, if I'm an argumentative person, maybe I end up in a career as a as a lawyer, as a trial lawyer, and that works well for me. Um, and then, you know, my whole life is built around, or a lot of it anyway, is built about being a lawyer. That's my career. Um, I have a lot of goals related to being a lawyer. I have various ways I interpret the, the world related to being a lawyer. Uh, and those are all characteristic adaptations, right? So 
being a lawyer is a way that I've adapted to my particular life circumstances, to my culture and to who I am personally. Um, but it's not something that has anything to do with, you know, something uh, evolved or something that might apply in any culture. Um, so I think it's, it's useful to make this distinction between all of the things that we uh, learn how to do or to think or to believe or to want um, that are contingent on our particular life experience and where we are and what culture we're in and what happens to us. Um, and to think about those, even when they're part of our personality, because they're stable over time, as being different from our basic personality traits. And so we can change our characteristic adaptations a lot more easily than we can change our personality traits. Right? And I think one of the things that mindfulness helps us to do is to become less attached to particular goals or particular strategies or particular interpretations or understandings of the world. Um, and so those can be more flexible, um, even you know, leaving the problem of what your personality traits are to one side. If I'm getting this correctly, the idea is that we can deliberately shape or modify our characteristic adaptations to orient them more towards well-being, right? Yes, absolutely. So that's really interesting. And I appreciate you pointing to mindfulness as one vehicle for doing that or one tool for doing that. I wonder if, and we actually talked about others, the importance of the integration of goals. Yeah, there is the sort of psychological flexibility um, to sort of adapt goals. I wonder if there are any other, if you have any other suggestions or any other insights about what are the key drivers of changing adaptations or, or what skills people could think about developing to improve their well-being? Yeah, well, um, I mean, you know, there are certain specific things that we know about and I think, you know, that are widely likely to improve people's well-being. And I think that's actually because they tie into some of these basic needs or, you know, goals that uh, everyone has just by virtue of being, uh, you know, a human organism. Um, so, for example, something that I know is really crucial for my well-being is uh, cardio exercise, right? Like, if I don't exercise, I become uh, irritable and uh, less happy within a matter of days. Um, and so, you know, there, we can come up with various specific tips that are related to just how people work. Um, but I think probably the most useful thing is to think about why it is that people don't change. Like, what is it that prevents people from changing their habits and from changing the way they think about things? And I think it's, it's largely to do with the fact that uh, change is both hard and frightening, right? And so I think in some ways that the best way, the best thing that you can do uh, to facilitate your own well-being is to recognize that uh, you are going to have to face and deal with precisely the things that you least want to face and deal with, right? Because the things that are, uh, that are too hard or too scary or too annoying, those are precisely the things that are likely to be what you most need to address because they are indicating areas where there is conflict between uh, different goals. I think that one of the things that makes change particularly hard is that it's, it's well, I mean, it's literally hard in that it requires effort, right? Uh, and one of the things that organisms do is that they try to conserve energy. And so built into us essentially that we are going to be careful about doing things that are difficult. Um, and so it's partly to conserve energy or not to uh, expend energy needlessly, but it's also because it's, it's frightening and potentially dangerous, right? 
uh, you know that saying that the devil you know is uh, better than the devil that you don't know. Um, and that has to do with the fact that uh, it's not just things that are difficult that, uh, that are aversive to us, it's also things that we don't understand and things that we can't predict. So uh, the fact is that if you are trying to uh, develop a whole bunch of new goals or new ways of thinking about the world, um, that is, uh, that's a frightening process. It's very uncertain because you, even if things you're doing now don't work very well, you at least can predict the ways in which they are going to be dissatisfying and the ways in which they don't work, right? So they're, they're obviously meeting some of your goals, even while you, know, you may be up, uh, upset or dissatisfied because they're not meeting other ones. For you to uh, throw those out and to try to develop a, a, a different way of being adapted to the world, different characteristic adaptations, um, well, uh, you may have a sense that you can get to a better place than you are than you are now, but it's obviously not certain, right? You're not you, you can't be sure that things will work out the way that you hope they do, and that is frightening, right? Because from a, from a cybernetic perspective, the thing that we most care about is maintaining our capacity to be able to uh, to move toward our goals, and you know one of those from the perspective of an organism is just to stay alive, right? We tend to be very motivated. Uh, to stay alive, and but then you have to think about it in terms of that hierarchy of goals. What is required to stay alive? Well, we know things like food and shelter at a, at a, at a minimum are crucial for staying alive. Um, if I want to change careers, for example, I'm not necessarily sure I'm going to be successful in a new career. That means I'm not sure I'm going to be able to make money. That means I'm not sure I'm going to be able to pay for a roof over my head or uh, food on my table. Right. So at some level, when you start opening up uh, the possibility of change, you are opening up the possibility that things could go wrong uh, to a degree that you cannot entirely predict, right? So uh, when we change, uh, you know, it's always, there's always a certain amount of faith. There's a certain amount of optimism that's required that you're, got, you, you know, you're making this leap and you have to be confident in your ability to, to make it work out. Um, and that's why going back to something we were talking about earlier, I think that it's this idea of resilience um, you know, there's a lot of psychological research on resilience, and one of the things that makes people resilient is uh, just being uh, less neurotic, less sensitive to negative emotion. You say, okay, well, that's fine. Of course, if somebody doesn't experience it as being quite as bad or as threatening or as punishing, uh, the experience is going to have less of a bad effect on the long term. But that's perhaps less helpful than uh, the possibility that no matter how bad it is, you have the capacity to... Uh, to explore and generate new, new successful ways of adapting to the world. And so I think, you know, rather than just basically trying to make people uh, experience less fear and less anxiety, we need to get people to believe that they have the capacity to deal with their own fear and anxiety, right? And to create new ways of thinking about the world and behaving in the world, even in the face of fear and anxiety. Uh, and that's one of the things that I think mindfulness is good for, you know, connecting, as you said, the two parts of this conversation um, is that it is really helpful to gain that perspective on your own anxiety when it appears, right? To say, okay, I'm worried about this because there's uncertainty here um, and that's making me want to avoid it. But if I can just sort of keep a broader perspective and recognize that that anxiety is just my response to uncertainty and the unknown, uh, then I can push through that uh, and do the work that I know needs to be done in order to figure out what to do next. It sounds like 
what you're saying is that courage is an important trait or it's an important lever for creating well-being, lasting, sustainable well-being. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Uh, courage and but also humility. Right. Because you have to not. That's the that's the point of non-attachment. Right. Is that you can't assume that you're already right. You can't assume that the way you're currently doing things is the best way to do things. You know, especially if you're dissatisfied. Like that's the that's always the funny thing when you see somebody who's uh, complaining about their lives, but then when you try to suggest any adjustments, uh, you get met with defensive resistance because they already know what they're doing. They already know how to do it right. It's like you might think, well, if you know how to do it right, then how come you're how come you're unhappy, right? Well, then you can blame the the rest of the world, right? Well, I'm doing it right. It's everybody else who's screwing up my life for me. Well, um, you know, at some point you have to have the uh, I guess both the courage and the humility to acknowledge that you're not doing it right and that uh, there are always ways that you could improve and that it might be worth actually facing that anxiety and facing that uncertainty and doing the hard work that's necessary uh, to change. Hmm. Well, Colin, I'm really appreciating all this stuff and, and just how skillfully you're kind of tying it all together. I'm mindful of the time here, and I, I, I know you probably have a busy afternoon. I'm wondering if there's anything else that you want to add or anything else you want to say that we didn't get a chance to cover so far. Uh, no, I think that's probably a pretty good place to leave it, Joe. I mean, there's obviously a lot more we could talk about, about personality, about meditation, right. <laughs> all kinds of things, but that's probably a, a reasonable place to end it for now. Okay, great. Maybe you could just um, tell us where we can get more information about your research, your lab, like your website or whatever? Uh, just look for my name, Google my name, uh, Colin DeYoung, and you'll find my website. Uh, I have a lot of my articles available on my website. That's great. Thank you so much, Colin, and uh, I hope to get a chance to talk with you again soon. Great. Nice to talk to you, Joe. All right. Take care.